0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger Podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black
2: legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bécher, meaning digger.
1: Hello everybody. Ho, ho, ho. Happy Christmas. It's the Cricket Badger Christmas special. When we look back across a year of Cricket Badger podcasts. I've churned out quite a few this year. Lockdown, COVID, given me plenty of time on my hands. This also meant a lot of my victims, sorry, interviewees, have been more than free to chat on the Cricket Badger podcast. So many this year. I have quite honestly lost count. We've done the IPL daily podcast as well and the Big Bash daily podcasts, and we're approaching 300 editions. But this Christmas special, it's given me the chance to look back across the year of 2020. Remember, some of the great chats I've had with some terrific guests. This is by no means an exhaustive list of Cricket Badger interviewees. I thank each and every one of them for coming on in the year 2020. But what you're going to hear on this Cricket Badger Christmas special is my favourite interviews and some clips from them as we relive a year that's been pretty nasty, hasn't it? We've had COVID-19, we've had lockdowns, And we've been denied cricket for big chunks of the summer. It's been a bit of a struggle this year, hasn't it? I'm sure some of you have lost people as well because of COVID-19. Thoughts are with you. Have a very happy Christmas. And uh, sit back, kick back and enjoy uh, a bit of a trip down memory lane as we go through some of my favourite bits of the Cricket Badger podcast of this year. You'll know... If you've listened to the Cricket Badger podcast a few times, when I do the interviews, I tend to do 20 questions. And one of the questions I ask players is, what was the best moment of their cricket careers? I'll give you one guess what the Ashington Express, Mark Wood, when he joined me in June 2020, answered to that question.
2: It's that Badger style.
1: I've a little wager with myself. I know what this answer is going to be, but you might surprise me. But what's been your best well, moment I think, in cricket? I think,
3: you should, I think you should should answer it, and I'll tell you if you're
1: right on. Well, I, I can only imagine it's the World Cup final. Uh, that, well, that's it's, got, the, it's got to be, has not it? It it's has to, to be. be, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was watching be. that video the other day. You know, the, the ICC did that cracking little video of the final, all the drama, all the tension and everything, yeah. and there's that little bit where, because you're not actually out there in the Super Over and you're on the edge yeah. of the pitch and they picture you just looking yeah. around nervously with your wide eyes. That must have been yeah. absolute torture not to be involved in that Super Over.
3: Oh, I hated it, hated it. Um, you can't influence it, can you, at that point? Yeah, you, when you're off the field, I mean, i tore my side, fallen. And although I went off the field, whilst it was obviously the first ends of the game, um, I came out and batted, I made it worse when I dived in to try me at the second run with Stokesy. And I just couldn't. Throw the ball basically, so I would have been absolutely no use to anybody. I mean, I would have tried to throw it. I'm not sure how powerful it would have been or how accurate, with my side um, being torn pretty badly. So I don't know. It was awful. <laughs> Um I didn't. I didn't enjoy. I mean, there's aspects of the final. I think how good was that when I look back. I and mean, then there's other bits that I think that I, I hated that game. that I really didn't enjoy it, and um, the tension, the the nervousness, but. Obviously, when you get the end result, it just makes it all worthwhile and euphoric. And um, I still as the proudest day ever. And like I said, yeah, I never thought I'd play one game for England. I'm, I'm a bit like you. I'm just a normal bloke, a lad that grew up playing club cricket, I grew up down the lane from his local club, and I'm just a normal lad that's been lucky enough to play for England. So to, you know, be involved with 11 people to win the World Cup, the first time the country's doing, it, I feel so proud of that. It's By far the best. And thing the top of my career.
1: It's almost like you've got a different name now, isn't it? Because you're going to be introduced now for the rest of your life as World Cup winner Mark Wood, or Mark Wood World Cup winner. It, that's never going to leave you, is it? You, you, that, nobody can ever take that away from you.
3: I know, and that's the thing that um, first hit me really, because you know, after after the the final, we watched videos of, of people jumping around the country and celebrating. There you were know, some great videos of cricket clubs and people's houses and uh, Trafalgar Square things. like were fantastic videos. The thing that really, when it really something for me was um, I got a lovely award at Ashington, um, like a Citizen's Award. I think only Bobby and Jackie Charlton had that award as well, so it was a, it was a nice um, thing to be awarded. And I was actually introduced as Mark Wood World Cup winner, and I think that was the first time it really hit me to think, you know, like I'm not Mark Wood, Durham England cricketer, Mark Wood World Cup winner. And it was great to hear those words.
1: Sky did some cracking little uh, kind of recaps um, over the winter and I think it rained quite a bit in one of the test matches in New Zealand. So I, w- I watched you your interview for that quite a few times and you you talk about going out to join Ben Stokes and, and you thinking, well, I'm not going to face a ball, so why have I got all my thigh pads and everything on and, and everything like that? But you only think about things like that looking back at matches, don't you? I mean, I, I guess everybody listening yeah. to this has probably got examples of that in their own life, but not in a World Cup final.
3: Yeah, I think it was just panic, I guess. There's nothing that... In- Nothing else I can really put on my mind. I mean, you're so clouded and, you know, people will know the same feeling when, you know, you've got a million things on your mind and you, you overthink it or you, you, you're totally somewhere else. And that's what I was. I wasn't thinking about, you know, I don't need all this stuff. I was thinking I'm going to have to run as fast as I can. Uh, there's one ball left. Come on, gear yourself up for that. So, um, And as well, a bit that comes before it is, I'm thinking I might have to back. It's not just I'm thinking I'm just going to have to run. Yeah. For an over and a half, I'm thinking: once if I've got to, you know, go out there and hit the winning runs, where am I going to hit it? What's he bowling? What's he trying to bowl? Um if Stokes gets out, it's me and Rash. So what are we going to do? If Rash gets out, do I just not get for Stokes? And is he going to try and win it? So there's literally at the most pressured times, there's a million things running through your head, and that was just one of the things I've forgotten. It's daft now, and looking back, I wish I had um, took it off because it might have helped. But um, yeah, it, it all turned out. All right, in the end, didn't it? So
1: it came out in the wash, didn't it? It was, it was, it was fine in the end. I mean, take take you back to that moment where Just put the whips the bales off, and you're on the boundary edge. What goes through yeah. your head there? Do you do you actually just um, think I'm a World Cup winner now, or do you, just just your head just go empty and you? Uh, how what happens? Because I mean, we all had that watching it mm. as a player involved in that. What goes through your head at that moment?
3: You're just in the moment, I guess. Um, I mean, I was halfway over the barrier as he as he collected the ball because you could sort of see. I mean, you get a perception in in even club games when you can see that it's going to be out. And I knew it was going to be out as long as Joss whipped the stumps off. So I was halfway sort of jumping over the barrier. And when he hit the stumps and, you know, his reaction, I mean, I I think it's out, but then you you totally know by Josh's reaction that he's got it. And um, I mean, uh, Mogi described it best when he said that it's like running down a hill. And that's exactly what it's like. So imagine as a kid, you run down a hill, your legs are going that fast that you cannot stop you don't want to stop, you just want to keep like running and, and jumping and um that's sort of people it's one of them where well, you get into like a, a, a group huddle kind of thing because you're all jumping on but you can't hear a thing, so it's just like ah it's ah, ah, just like muffled noise because everybody's screaming and shouting and nobody actually says anything, it's just sorta of just pure emotion, it's just brilliant. Um I mean Liam is the biggest guy. And my team he's flooded tears Stokes, he had tears in his eyes I mean, these are the hardest biggest toughest lads we've got and yeah to say the emotion part then was 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 special I remember Chris walks lifting me up and sort of like walking me across the field and um, I don't even think we said anything we just we just like <laughs> looked at each other like in disbelief like we've actually done it um, and I think you know it was a a long hard road to get there from 2015 when we started plus a long hard road in the competition you know it wasn't just yeah. four yards it was it was pretty rough during the World Cup as well but to be able to say we've done it in the end was you know I still can't believe we've, we've done it in a great deal
1: in May I spoke to a player I've never spoken to before but one I've had massive admiration for Jack Russell just behind Alan Not for me as the greatest wicketkeeper of all time. I was a little bit nervous when I spoke to Jack. I'm not usually that nervous on the Cricket Patcher podcast interviews but got massive respect for him. Heard a lot about him, quite quirky, quite eccentric. So I wasn't quite sure what to expect, but he was an absolute diamond. I always think when I look at your pictures of you with that sun hat on which you had for throughout your career, didn't you? It reminds me of that episode of Only Fools and Horses with Trigger and his sweeping brush, where he basically yeah. says he's changed the handle about ten times and he's changed the uh, changed the uh, kind of whiskers on the bottom about eight times. So it's not the same sweeping brush. How, how much of that hat was repaired and how much of it was the original one? Was it was it all still there?
4: Well, uh, and I love that uh, that Trigger scene. By the way, I love Fools and Horses. I that makes me think of my hat every time I see it. So <laughs> you, you're dead right. No, I had the hat was given to me my very first day as a professional cricketer in 1982. And it did get. Uh, I had it every. Um, I played every first-class match with it, apart from a short spell in the West Indies with England. But we won't go into that because they made me change my hat a little, uh, for a few games. But that's a that's a podcast on its own, so we won't go into detail on that. But I had it right through all my career, and it had to be rebuilt a few times. I agree, and I didn't burn it in a in an oven in the West Indies. I was trying to starch the brim, and I put it in this oven, and um, basically it, it sort. Of top part of it, disintegrated. So I've had to rebuild it over the years. And I, what I used to rebuild it, I didn't actually do it myself, my wife was the only person allowed to touch it. And at the end of every season, um, it would be washed and we'd be, it would have to be stuck in the uh, the airing cupboard to dry over a biscuit jar, two tea towels and the tea cozy. That's just, that was the size of my head. That kept it the same size and we starched it. Um, but the repairs to the actual material, I used my old coach at Gloucestershire who played for Gloucestershire in the fifties. A guy called Graham Wiltshire, no longer with us. Um, he was the first team coach at Gloucester when I was a when I was a youngster, and um, he I used to badger him every winter to go up into his loft and get out his old flannels and his old because uh, the, the, the material in those days was, was like a nice cotton. Uh, the material these days is all plasticky poly, polyester stuff. Uh, that 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 would never do for the hat. So he would use the, he would have to go up to his loft every winter. Or every other winter, and cut out a piece of uh, old white flannel for me, which my wife had stitched back onto the hat. I hope it's a good job he never got a recall or uh, uh, come back to play, because he probably had one one trouser short on one side, it wasn't you know short leg on one side and long on the other. His, his trousers used to be in bits, but without Graham Wheelchair I don't think the hat would have survived. But you can still um, see the original badge on the inside, actually, from that first outboard. So most of it is still that was is still there, and it, it was still there.
1: And is it in private place somewhere? You, you, I would imagine you treasured it and kept it.
4: I always keep it in a safe place because I have a panic attack if I don't know where it is. Um, <laughs> and I never used to leave my hat at the ground. Uh, if we, yeah, if we, even if we were playing away, I'd put them in my bag and I'd go back to the hotel with my hat and my gloves. They never, they never, ever stayed at the ground. <clears throat> um, all my innards and everything I used to take back with me. And if we were on a flight or we were on tour, they would come into the cabin of the uh, aircraft with me. You know, I'd be in my hand luggage. They wouldn't go down into the into the hole. They'd have to be with me. So i had my gloves, my well, two pairs over 20 odd years, basically, uh, more or less. And they used to, you know, they, I've got a bit. They used to, I used, did, I didn't, I didn't, I never noticed because I got immune to it. But they did used to smell a little bit on in the inner. So on a flight, I used to get weird looks from people because they, this, from the smell coming from underneath my seat, uh, was my gloves and my my inner and my hat. So uh, I, the hat's always in a safe place. I never, I know, I know where it is 24 hours a day.
1: In changing times like these, make a change yourself. Buy your own home. Still living with parents or renting? Why not buy your first property? Mortgage rates are lower than ever. Speak to Blue Crocodile. Blue Crocodile? Yeah, Blue Crocodile. They'll get you the right first time buyer deal by searching the market for the most competitive option for
4: you. They don't bite, they're just straight talking people like me. Give them a bell or go online. Blue Crocodile. Oh.
1: Paul Smith, the former Warwickshire All-Rounder, has been on the Cricket Badger podcast a couple of times now. He first appeared in January and he came back on in October. His book, Wasted? A terrific read. Get it if you can. But the word wasted in that title has more than one meaning. And I asked Paul in October whether he felt he'd got the most out of his career, whether he felt it had been a little bit too short. Here's what he had to say.
5: You know, sort of from such a young age, to play that amount of cricket. I mean, you know, I think you either burn out, you know, you, you you either get worked out and you and you don't have a long career, but if you do have a long career, your enthusiasm for it and you also have the physical and the mental aspect of it that's often overlooked. Um, I think you have a certain amount of juice in the tank and it's certainly with me by the time I was, you know, sort of early 30s, I'd, I'd actually achieved what I set out to do. So, you know, that's quite difficult and, and, there are obvious examples in other walks of life you know as to why I don't know why would a lead singer walk walk out of a of a multi-platinum album band you know and people say you're mad, but if you don't want to do it anymore, then you, know, you can kiss the, the band goodbye you walk um, and no one plays forever no matter what you do uh, so I think I'd, I'd given it everything that I possibly could and, and if you feel that. Then you haven't wasted your career. You've actually achieved a lot more than what I think. In hindsight, you know, you, you achieve a lot. Um, so did, you know, I never thought I was going to play till I was 44, like Dennis Amos, or 47, like Norman Gifford. <laughs> it was, it was, it was. Uh, I think I'd be a caricature of what, I, you know, what I was when I when I really set out on that journey.
1: But did cricket end on your terms? though? I read a piece the other day about you, um, The Guardian. It was a review of uh, of your book, and I'll, I'll read you that paragraph. By 1997, however, he was no player at all. After descending into drug addiction, he was banned for 22 months for bringing the game into disrepute. And then there's a quote from you. The time I started taking drugs to the time I knew I was finished as a player took just 18 months. I was fingered and I covered for a lot of other people. If you take drugs, you've got an issue that needs to be addressed. It doesn't make you a bad person. I'm tinged with that, but I don't give a monkey's what people think of me. What (laughs) what, What I was trying to get to there was that you know your your career from outside and i've spoken to you a lot but i don't know you particularly well it looked like it finished because of the drug addiction and because of uh, of that kind of stuff rather than it being on your terms
5: well i don't think you ever finished really on your own terms you know even those that you know retire quietly someone's probably had a word in their ear you ever finish on your own terms i think at that time you know it was uh it was a hugely emotional time of life uh uh, because we played this huge amount of cricket, that was um, very taxing mentally and physically, um, a lot of pressure, uh, and then you, and, and that's just what you do for a living, you know. Uh, there were other things that were going on. Mm. So, <laughs> regarding what my quote was there, apart from the fact that I couldn't give the monkeys what people think of me, uh, I would probably stand by most of what Paul Weaver quoted me on.
1: Yeah, I was, I mean, that was going to be my follow-up question: was the bit about not caring what people think of you? I mean, in my experience, and I've been exactly the same. When when people say that, they don't mean it.
4: Well,
5: I think that if you if you if you walk around worrying what other people think, it will hinder you in many ways. <laughs> uh, so I think that you know, at the, at the end of the day, I think that it's about being um, about being realistic. You know, people. There's all sorts of reasons why people like people. And there's all sorts of reasons why people don't like people. Um, it, it doesn't, to, say that it doesn't, to say that it doesn't worry me, I think that you shouldn't look for bad in people. And, you know, there's, there's no perfect human. So, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people could say a lot of things about a lot of people. And you could also, the people who criticize could also get slated, you know, because of what sort of characters they are themselves. You know, some of them are pretty well known and sit on um, breakfast television, you know, every morning.
1: I met Brad Hogg when I was doing some work out in Abu Dhabi on the Emirates T20 a couple of years ago, and he was really good company. And he came on the podcast in May to answer the Cricket Badger 20 questions. and the Cricket Badger podcast, we have a laugh, we have jokes, we talk about the good times in people's careers, but we also tackle the serious stuff too. And Brad has had a few struggles in his time. Mental health is uh, a big thing in cricket, and big thing in life, especially this year. And Brad Hogg came very close to ending it all. He now does uh, a bit of work around mental health to encourage other people to get through the dark times. But here's Brad talking about a moment where he was struggling to see through the fog. You, you talk about driving, was it, to Fremantle um, four times and actually seriously considering swimming out there and if you didn't get back, it didn't really matter. You, was, you were kind of close to the edge.
6: Yeah well, yeah, well, going back to where I was writing about Moody and um, Hados earlier, I was going to bring the point up then. actually. I'm glad you did. Uh, yeah, I, w- I went through that phase. It was a tough phase because basically I gave uh, cricket. The dream of playing the Ashes, you know, that that would have been the icing on the cake for me, uh, because that's what you strive to do. You you just want to be part of that Ashes tour to England, and it was there, it was in my grasp, and I I didn't get there. And uh, the thing that I gave it up for was my family, and then all of a sudden, yeah, just it wasn't happening, and uh, we separated, and you know, all I could see was just everything that I'd worked for just uh, taken away from me, and I was thinking uh, I was in a negative phase there and I was going out uh, quite regularly and when I was out everyone thought I was uh, pretty happy and uh, it was one night I'd come home from Perth I was in the cab my brother was in the back with his girlfriend we're going back to my parents house where my car was I was talking to the Indian cabbie uh cab driver that we had and we're talking about cricket and then we got in a bit of a uh, little bit of an argument uh, I think it was about uh, well obviously to do something with uh, Indian cricket and Australian cricket uh, I got out of the cab my brother uh, calmed it down uh, and I will point out that I did, I rang the cab company the next day to try and apologise uh, to the cab driver but they uh, they couldn't get a hold of him so they passed on the uh, my message but I still would prefer to uh, apologise to him face to face but uh, that happened, went inside, had an argument with mum and dad, got in my car, drove home which is about 10 minutes from where they live, and I shouldn't have been driving, by the way. I don't want to advertise it, but I got home, and I went into the bathroom. I was absolutely fuming with myself, Then I looked at myself in the mirror, and I said, you've got to change your ways. And I walked back out of the bathroom, knocked on the door, it was my dad. I said, Dad, I'm okay. I'll come and see you tomorrow. Apologize to Mum, please. And then I walked into my office and wrote on the board where I wanted my life to go Uh, from now. And it was amazing. Within a week later, uh, within a week, I was getting phone, uh, phone calls for a job, uh, job offer. So just that change of mindset just changed my life. And then I met my wife now, um, who is really my backbone, and encouraged me to get back into cricket. And that, that was just to go back and play great, great cricket. There was nothing there to uh, go back and play for Australia or the Perth scorches or anything like that. It was just to go out and uh, get back into something that I loved, to, just to... Uh, keep my mind fresh and you know it's uh it's so funny uh because i do a lot of lifeline now i look back at that time and i you know you know it's a sad time but i go, I go and talk to people now in public the first time i I talked it was i felt embarrassed like the whole crowd just stopped when i went through that story and then afterwards everyone just came up to me with their own story so i'm glad that it can help other people now and uh, just my motto now is if you going through a Um, tough patch you can't talk to anyone Uh, we've got Lifeline here where you can ring up and they have got people that talk to you and uh, just help you get through a day to make tomorrow uh, a better day so that's my motto now going forward so anyone there that is listening here and there's a lot of cricketers that have committed suicide uh, over in England as well that um we don't want to see that continuing, and with what's going on now, it's even more prevalent. So, speak to someone, please, because you know everyone's going through a tough time, and we've got to help each other out. Mm-hmm.
1: Brad Hogg. I also met Waka Yunis and he came on in June, just ahead of Pakistan's tour of England. And one of the things I wanted to know from Waka, as a player of limited ability myself, who never played in the professional game, who was marvelled at some of the fast bowlers through the years, what does it feel like to be able to bowl at nearly 100 miles an hour, to bowl those bowls that make the best batsmen in the world, rush their shots and get out? Here's Waka's answer.
0: It is hard to explain it in words, honestly. It is just a uh... That's the feeling you play for, to be very honest. It's not the money. It's not the fame. It's, it's just that that particular uh, moment. That, that, that's what you play for because you're in control and you're on top of your game. And and, and you know that you're going to get that batsman and, you know, you can do things the way you want. And uh, I feel that uh, that, is, that is probably the best feeling. It's, it's hard to explain.
1: And how much do you miss that once you've retired? And you're obviously never going to experience that again ever, are you? Mm. How much do you miss that? Uh,
0: look, I, I, I just, I get frustrated at times. I don't miss it because my body is, is so tired now and, and <laughs> you know, it aches so much in the morning. So I don't really miss it. But when it frustrates me sometimes because when I see some uh, dollars when they have got things in control and they don't really make full use of it, and that really frustrates me sometimes.
1: And you, you've also done you, you, you've done your media work and you're in coaching as well. Do you, do you feel that those kind of feelings that you have, that frustration and everything, do you are you able to challenge that quite well into coaching? Can you see a, a young fast bowler and you're able to point him in the right direction because of your own experiences?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, when I when I'm coaching or when I go back into uh, when when I go back into talking to these kids, I, I put myself in, in their shoes and 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 think how are they thinking and. And try to guide them through that, rather than you know pushing, uh, or you should do this or that, and that's not right or wrong. There's no such thing right or wrong. It's just that how you do things, how you how you uh, handle things, and 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 that's sometimes as I said, it gets frustrating. Uh, but it it gets very pleasing when they when they get it right also.
1: My former buddy from Yorkshire days, when he was the batting coach at Yorkshire, and I was the media manager there. He came on in April, Kevin Sharp, has had plenty of success at Worcestershire since he left the White Rose County. We talked about his early days at Yorkshire and his first trip into the Yorkshire dressing room when he encountered a certain Geoffrey Boycott.
2: I don't think it ever fazed me being around Jeff Or I mean, Boycott sent me home on my first day as a, as a young professional, do you know that? No. Yeah, well, as I, when I walked into the dressing room at, at Headingley in the old dressing room on my first day, I walked in with my cricket bag and a pair of jeans and a T-shirt on. The first guy I walked into was a chap called Jeffrey Boycott. And he looked at me and he said, uh, oh, he said, uh, what's your name? I said, well, Kevin, Kevin Sharp. He says, all oh, right, he says. He says, look, he said, just go put your bag over there in that corner. Go home and put some decent clothes on. <laughs> he said, have you got here today? I says, well, I says, I'll just come on the bus. I only live at Meanwood up the road. He says, right, well, go get back on that bus and put some decent clothes on and come back. And so I went home on the bus and my mum was in in the kitchen and she said, what are you doing? And I told her I'd been sent home to put some clothes on. So I went back in a pair of trousers, an open neck shirt and a jacket. And I walked back in the dressing room and it was just getting near lunchtime then. So I'd missed the whole morning session. And he looked at me and he said, that's better. He said, boycott, pleased to meet you. (laughs) So that was my first day as a professional cricketer got sent home by the great man. But, you know, I was never kind of felt with Jeff. I mean, Jeff was, you know, very, obviously, very forthright and obviously opinionated and very blunt in many ways, but obviously spoke fantastic sense and knowledge about the game. But I travelled with him for a lot when I was younger when I first sort of passed my driving test. Lived in in Durkin, where he lived in Woolley, and we used to travel a lot together to games. I used to drive his big which I liked doing and I was never really phased by him he was helpful to me in the winters when I stopped going abroad he helped me fix up some coaching and things like that so I could earn a few quid so no, not really intimidated or first, but I'm sure, I mean, I know there were, were plenty of players who would have been.
1: We might as well stay on the same theme, would not we? Because Geoffrey Boycott, Sir Geoffrey, as he is now, came onto the Cricket Badger podcast in September. Fantastic interview he gave me, available in two parts, as are all of these interviews still available on the Cricket Badger podcast platform, whatever platform you listen to on. If you like some of these snippets, then you can find the full interviews still there, available to listen to. But when Sir Geoffrey came on the podcast, we talked about a lot... Of different things, but the one thing that I think he'll be remembered for, and I think he hopes he'll be remembered for, is that day at Headingley where he raised both arms to the sky celebrating his 100th hundred.
7: When I die, the lasting memory will be my 100th hundred at Headingley. I wasn't the greatest batsman that ever lived, not by light years, and yet nobody in the history of the game had ever made 100 hundreds and done it in a test match, and the media were all going mad about I was 99 after getting my 98th against Australia at Nottingham in my comeback test then I think with three days off and I got 100 for Yorkshire against a rain ruin match uh, at Edgbaston against Warwickshire then they were all saying "Ah, he's going to get his 100-100 as if just like that you can get 100 (laughs) not easy to come by any time then the extra pressure of England-Australia test match headingly home ground big crowd but they were all believing I was going to get my hundred, and well, I did. Um, I was so wound up the night before, oh, I knew the pressure and everything. My Rachel then came over to relax me, and she was there at the match, and she was actually sitting down by the rugby stand there at Headingley, the old rugby stand. When I hit it straightish, passed the ball on the straightish on side, and it went near where she was sitting. And later, when I was drinking champagne and being interviewed on the balcony. We found out a long time later, didn't realize it. There was a photograph with me raising a glass of champagne with a stump in the other hand. We took some photographs for our house we had built in Cape Town in 2005, I think it was, first Christmas there. So from 77 to 2005, and she got some photographs, and she said, oh, I was there that day. I should have been there. I was with the crowd outside the pavilion, and when we looked, you could see her. In the crowd, right under my elbow, where I'm lifting this champagne glass. Marvellous.
1: That's perfect symmetry, that, isn't it? I mean, it's a boy's own tale, that, to do it at Headingley and everything like that. I've spoken to a lot of players, Geoffrey, and they say they can remember certain things in their career crystal clear. Can you remember that that on-drive that went past Graham Roop and hit the boundary? Can you remember that clear as day?
7: Yeah, I can remember what I was thinking as well, um... Rachel told me afterwards that, oh, I was on 80-some a long time and everybody was worried. I said, well, I wasn't worried. (laughs) I was only nervous when I was on naught or the first 20 runs I had to make. Once I was in, I I didn't believe in the nervous 90s. I thought, I platted to get 90-odd runs. I'm in charge here. I'm in control. Unless he bowls me a magic ball, it's just a question of me keeping cool, waiting for the right ball, put it away. And I knew he was going to bowl me a bouncer and test me because he, he bowled medium, medium, steady. They couldn't get me out, so they tried Greg Chappell. He was the captain, just a couple of overs, see so if you do some at daft. And I knew he was going to bounce me, which was a quicker ball he bowled. I'd sucker you out, so I let that go. I wasn't going to try driving through extra cover because I knew he just swung it out and might nick it. I Just wait for the right ball. I actually knew I was going to hit it before I did. Once it left his hand, I think it pitched around off stump, just outside, but the length was right. But as soon as he let it go, I knew I was going to hit it before I hit it. And I just took it from outside to in, to hit it straight past the wickets. And as soon as I hit it, you see my arm go up. I know it's gone. It doesn't happen often, that type of thing, where you're so in the zone that you know precisely what you're going to do before you do it. But that was a magical moment where I did know exactly what I was going to do and was able to do it. So it was a magical time.
1: I've never been in that zone, Jeffrey, never, ever.
7: Well, I've done it a few times like that, but it is a few. And I can tell you, it is what you practice for all those years. You practice years and years so that you can play at the highest level and you can do it when it matters, under pressure, under the most extreme moments when it's so important. And... That's what you practice for. And then the mental side is the key as well. That you you practice your concentration, your patience, to hold it all together when you're being put under such severe pressure. And purely is that what you practice for. And then when you're in the 90s, for me, it's not a problem. I was always amazed that I got out in the 90s sometimes because I felt that is the easier time. The hard time isn't when you're on north, first 10, 15, 20 runs.
1: And you're right in the, f- the first part of your answer, though. And when people look back in 100 years, say, and they're talking about the, the greats of yesteryear, it'll be those images at Headingley that you are in the books for, and not it? That, you know, raising your back, your two so. arms to the air. Yeah, I hope so. Former Warwickshire All-Rounder, Dougie Brown, came onto the podcast in July. Dougie, now out there in the UAE, setting up a new coaching business. Hopefully, I haven't spoken to him since, but hopefully that's going okay, despite the fact that COVID's impacted on a lot of businesses around the globe. Just before I spoke to Dougie, I listened to the Tuffers and Vaughan show and heard Phil Tufnell telling a tale about an England training camp that involved him and Dougie Brown. So I asked Dougie to give his side of the same story. Quite a funny one. Here's Dougie Brown from July. And my memories of a lot of pre-season trips when you were with Warwickshire, and I remember you running around a hotel in Barbados training with Ashley Giles. Um, I've just kind of every every single memory of coming into contact with you at some stage. I see you running around doing something physical. There was a, a story that Phil Tufnell told on Radio Five um, Live on his show with Varni the other night, where he said that on one of he was playing himself down, but he was on the bike on an exercise bike on an England trip. And you ran past him. He was on his bike and you ran past him because you were the fittest human being that he's ever ever seen, I think, Phil Tovner.
8: The, <laughs> the hilarious thing about that was that we, so we were in a place called Club La Santa in Lanzarote on a, on a... It was like a, bringing every single England player together. It was about 50 cricketers who were all on, Eng, on the England programme, under-19s, A-team, one-day squad, uh, test squad. We were all there. Uh, and Bumble was, was coach and all the support staff. We were all there basically we'd had a, a really good week. It had been really hard. Uh, and it sort of culminated and we were doing this, this triathlon and the way they had pitched it was they, they went with they went in order. So everybody was ranked, you know, one to fifty if you like. And and I was sort of up at top and, and tough as wasn't he was <laughs> down the bottom. So I was <laughs> I was sort of put together with him and we had to do a swim and then a, a cycle and then a run. But we all had to do every bit of it but one person could do more of it. For so argument's sake, if we had to swim two hundred metres, you know, I could swim fifty metres and, and my partner could do one hundred and fifty metres. But you had to cover the distance yeah. together. Okay. And so we we strategized the like night before um in the bar as you do, um, and everybody else was doing the same sort of thing because we you know, it was a bit of fun, but you wanted to compete. You wanted to be as, as good as you can and try and work out the right strategy. And Tuffler said he was a really good um really good swimmer. He had swung for the school and all that sort of stuff and I was like, okay, well, you can do a bit more than that than me, and I'll do the running and the bike. And we had two bikes. So it was a mountain bike and a road bike. And so a couple of had the road bike because he could go a bit quicker. And the bit I was doing, I said, well, I'll do the majority of the running and so on and so forth. Anyway, we had devised a strategy. We were doing loop. It was like a 10-kilometer loop. And in the end, I had to do something like 15 kilometers running. And I, I hadn't seen after after he dived into the swimming pool and then set off doing breaststroke, I was like, "I think we might have got this a bit wrong." So he's doing <laughs> his breaststroke, picky, in the other lane is You know, he's like chewing the water off up, up and down, tumble tons and all that sort of stuff. all that sort of stuff. And in the end, there was a great big bit of rock. I was blowing hard, and it was really hot as well. And uh, I ran past this rock. And there was like a and there was like smoke coming up from behind a rock, and I saw a bike down on its side, <laughs> and I actually stopped and looked in, and, and it was tougher than there having a fag. <laughs> "It looks like we are blown it." I was like' it was, we finished last, and i was I, I, honestly I'd never run as hard and cycled as hard as I would ever done over the course of that sort of hour and a half period. It was unbelievable, um and we yeah we rocked up finishing last, it was very funny.
1: I take it you've not entered another triathlon with Phil Tufnel since. <laughs> no, no. But I wouldn't,
8: I wouldn't, look, uh, yeah, I would, I would, I would do it again. I would do it with, I'm, sure I'm back
1: in this
2: time. It's that Badger style
1: there we go then that's the end of part one of the christmas special of the cricket badger podcast and you know what to do you press stop on this part one you turn over to part two on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on and you find part two and press play i'll see you there
8: Podcast Network.